Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Rose had no magic, and she knew it. Rose was a hack, but a lot of hacks are really successful. She was a complicated lady. I find Rose is very divisive. You either love her or you don't like her at all. I find her just so despicable. Most of my personal reaction is to feel sorry for Laura. I'm like, man, this was her companion. She was a bit bohemian, and she just didn't think like everybody else did. She's just a kind of lavishly talented, but incredibly frustrating personality. It is amazing, the bad-mouthing that goes on 50 years after her death. I am so disgusted with that, because I think Rose was a heroic woman. Laura Ingalls Wilder and her husband Almanzo had one living child named Rose. If you only know Rose from the Little House in the Prairie books, you don't know much. In the first decades of the 20th century, Rose Wilder Lane was one of the most successful and controversial freelance writers in the country. Rose was such a famous writer in her time. She was so popular. Rose is the reason Laura, a middle-aged farm wife, picked up a pen and started writing about eggs. Rose told her to. Well, they'd had a symbiotic relationship related to writing for many, many years. Rose would write her mother and suggest stories that she should work up for the Missouri Ruralist or some other Kansas or Missouri newspaper. Rose was also the one who encouraged her mother to do more than write articles about farm life. Rose pushed Laura to write the little house books and was integral to the process. She was wrapped up so closely in pushing her mother to do this writing, 
in editing and revising and getting the books published. She is just woven into the whole story in ways that you cannot ignore. And it was Rose, the world-famous writer, scared of being eclipsed by her mother's success, who, overcome with jealousy and resentment, almost derailed the entire Little House series before it even got started. Behind the cozy, wholesome sweetness of the Little House books is a raging mother and daughter relationship that is the stuff of soap operas and tabloid talk shows. I mean, people in Mansfield still, there's still memories about this hanging around in Mansfield, Missouri. That's how big a deal it was. But how did it get to this point? As far as Little House readers know, Rose only appears in the first four years, the last and least well-known of the books. As the title suggests, the first four years covers Laura's first four years of marriage to Almanzo. Rose arrives in the second year, a happy and healthy baby. She's named after the prairie roses Laura loves so much. A rose in December was much rarer than a rose in June. Christmas was at hand and Rose was a grand present. It's a sweet, loving description that comes in the middle of a very odd, off-putting book. Unlike the rest of the Little House series, the first four years is not an enjoyable read. Yeah, it is jarring, and I remember that same feeling reading it as a kid, like, what is this? Where did this come from? (laughs) It's jarring because the first four years is an unedited manuscript. It was never meant to see the light of day, but was nevertheless published after both Laura and Rose had died. And yet, the first four years might be the most pivotal book in the Little House series. Written by Laura in the aftermath of an epic implosion in Laura and Rose's relationship, it eventually launched a decades-long conspiracy theory over the authorship of the Little House books. If you look at all the available information, When you look at Laura's writing and you look at Rose Wilder Lane's writing, Rose Wilder Lane wrote the books. Rose is woven into the Little House creation story in ways you can't ignore. However you feel about her, there is no question that more than Laura's editors, more than Garth Williams, who later illustrated the books, Rose is responsible for the Little House series. But who was she really? In the first part of this two-part episode, we're going to meet Rose Wilder Lane. Where did she come from? What was her life like? How did she become her mother's greatest collaborator and underminer? Buckle up. I'm Glynis McNichol, and this is part one of Rose Wilder Lane. The thing about Rose Wilder Lane is her life story is the stuff of Hollywood. 
and the fact she hasn't been given the Hollywood treatment is a bit strange when you consider how much Hollywood loves adventure, drama, and scandal. Like any classic American tale, Rose had humble, small-town beginnings. Welcome to the Ingalls home, everyone. This is the last house built by Charles Ingalls. He built this house in 1887, and the family moved in on Christmas Eve. Emily and I are in DeSmet, South Dakota, a tiny town on the eastern side of the state, surrounded by rolling farmland. DeSmet is the setting of the last five Little House books, and we're touring the Ingalls' home. It's a beautiful two-story house not far from DeSmet's main street. At some point, it was inhabited by all of the Ingalls, except for Laura, who was already married to Almanzo by the time Charles built this house. This is a photograph of Laura and Almanzo shortly after they were married in 1885. They had their daughter, Rose, on December 5th of 1886, and then their luck kind of ran out for a little while. It was during this difficult time for the Wilders that Rose lived here in this house. Almanzo and Laura caught diphtheria, which was a very common disease at the time. While they were recovering, their daughter Rose stayed here with her grandparents, and the original bedroom upstairs became Rose's room. Despite the short time she spent here, Rose featured prominently in our tour. Even from stories about her as a baby, evidence of her strong personality is present. This is a photograph of Rose when she was young. If you look closely, you'll see that she's wearing a ring in this photograph. The photographer did not want her to be wearing this ring. So whenever he would pose her for her portrait, he would have her hand cover up the ring. But whenever he would go behind the sheet to take the photo, she would always switch her hands back. Even as a child, she was very strong-willed and independent. She grew up into be quite the strong-willed, independent adult. Because so little is known about Rose outside her minimal presence in the books, the truth of Rose's early years can come as quite a shock to readers who only know her as the sweet baby Laura wrote about. But Rose was a force of nature, and her story is at least as wild as Laura's, if not more so. I talked Joe through her basic bio. Well, walk me through, just walk me through her early childhood and her life, and just like, I want to hear about Rose before she became Rose. <laughs> right. Um, so she was born in 1886 in Dismet, South Dakota, which we've been to because that's where Laura lived. Laura was only 19 when she got pregnant. They'd only been married. Babies having babies. Her and Almanzo. Babies had, having babies. Babies having babies. Her and Almanzo had only been married for one year. Shortly after Rose is born, Laura and Almanzo get diphtheria. Almanzo has a stroke. He's partially paralyzed. Their crops fail. They lose their house. They lose all their money. Laura has a baby boy who dies a few weeks after birth. Their house burns down. Like, it's a very traumatic early childhood. And they were very poor, right? Poor. They're so poor that for her whole life, Rose had mm -hmm. terrible teeth. Mm -hmm. She was very resentful of that. She's a very, very smart kid. Like, she's very smart from a young age. And right around the age of eight, they see an advertisement for the Ozarks, the land of apples, and they decide to move to the Ozarks. So they take, the, you know, they go to the Ozarks with one $100 bill. They get to the Ozarks and buy this land, but it's called Rocky Ridge because it's full of rocks, and it takes years to clear and years to be self-sufficient. They're deeply, deeply poor. Rose is dressed in 
I wouldn't say rags, but she's not dressed well. And she's so aware of this when she goes to school, the class discrepancy of how smart she is and how poor she looks. And sometime in high school, she's so advanced that her mother sends her off to live with Eliza Jane, Almanzo's sister. As much as Rose hated Mansfield and resented her mother and adored her father— She always wanted to leave Mansfield. She could never help. She was always coming back. She was always coming home. She went to high school with Eliza Jane, comes back. But there's some sense, and of course, these things are hard Mm -hmm. to gauge, but there is some sense in Caroline Fraser's book that Rose may have been, I mean, I'm using loaded words here, but these are the words that I think would have been attached to her at the time. She was like perhaps a little promiscuous Mm. that she, you know— liked boys Mm -hmm. and was maybe a little risky for, I mean, my God, can you imagine what small town Ozarks were like at the turn of the century? I think Rose was probably just a lot of fun. Rose and Laura had an extremely fraught relationship from very early on. Because as a mother, I imagine there's a lot of guilt to not being able to provide your daughter with certain things or not knowing how to handle her. And Laura was a teen mom. She was, yeah. They're so poor. She's got a husband with a disability. Laura's been working since the age of nine, and she has a daughter who is a lot to handle. So we know from Laura writing about herself that she had a temper. She was very candid about that when she wrote about her childhood in in the Little House series. And she was headstrong. And I think you see that in Rose. You see that sort of aggressiveness in the controlling nature. Caroline Fraser's book, Prairie Fires, she writes extensively about Rose And Caroline writes, you know, yes, Laura had a temper, but Laura was willing to acknowledge that temper. But Laura was able to recognize her flaws, and Rose seemed unable. Yeah, I imagine them butting heads, right? You have these two strong, ambitious, smart, ahead-of-their-time women who, you know, I could already see it happening with my own daughter, Like, when you have these two strong personalities, I think it becomes very difficult. Rose, which I think we can both relate to, got the hell out of Mansfield, Missouri, as soon as she could. She met a man called uh, Gillette Lane. (laughs) Like, this is the least surprising thing, a man named Gillette Lane. He's a confidence man, which— A con man. A con man, right? A con man. They were married for— Technically, they were married for a while, and they had a tumultuous marriage. They were, you know, itinerant, uh, always trying to pull together. Cons. Scam cons. might be. Yeah, probably yeah. cons. <laughs> Funds. Yeah, probably cons. Um, and Rose became pregnant and then had a stillbirth, and a very, very difficult stillbirth that mm. made it impossible for her to have children after that, and was ill for quite some, like, in the hospital for quite a long time. Mm. And eventually— their marriage falls apart. She goes to San Francisco on her own in right about 1915. God, how old was she then? She would have been, in 1915, she would have been almost 30. Yeah. She files for divorce, which in 1915, even in San Francisco, is... Scandalous. Not a small thing. Yeah. And right around this time, you know, Rose is alone in San Francisco, and she writes Laura this incredibly endearing letter and asking Laura to come to San Francisco and visit her. And she says, Dearest Mama Bess, which is what she called Laura 
her whole life because Almanzo called Laura Bess. And so the fact that Rose includes her first name sort of is like, she sees her mother as a bit of a contemporary, even from a young age, but... Dearest Mama Bess, I simply can't stand being so homesick for you anymore. You must plan to come out here in July or at latest August. You've simply, all cap, got to. I can send you $5 a week to make up for what you will lose in chickens, etc. by the trip. I think that's sweet. It is sweet. And also, knowing that in so many of Rose's journals, she wrote, with deep resentment over giving her parents money. It's like she is internally conflicted about how much she loves and needs them. Like her mother particularly, like they're so intertwined. They cannot separate from each other. Even in their worst moments, their lives are so connected and they need each other so badly. Anyway, Rose is in San Francisco. She gets divorced. She gets a job at the San Mm -hmm. Francisco Bulletin as a secretary, but then her talents are noticed almost immediately and she gets moved up into an editor position and then she gets moved up into a reporter position and starts going out and reporting stories wow that's amazing yeah 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 wow so what kind of newspaper was that was that say the new york times or the new york post (laughs) well this is still the heyday of yellow journalism right and many newspapers at that time Uh, encouraged a degree of salaciousness and exaggeration. Scandal. Scandal cells. Scandal. Mm -hmm. And, you know, into this world arrives Rose, who it turns out has an enormous talent for Mm. taking a kernel of truth and turning it into a fantastic tale that is... Maybe or maybe not true. Right. Like, there's a very tenuous connection, and she was really, really good at it. And again... It's easy in hindsight to be like, oh, that's very shoddy journalism. But having survived both of us on the blogosphere and in tabloid uh, papers, in your case, it's like she's a single woman supporting herself in a city. That's not easy. Not not an easy city. Mm -mm. No. And she's supporting two aging parents who are financially unstable, you know, in Missouri. It's like, if you're good at this, lean in. Lean in. And she leaned, right? She leaned, and she was Mm. very good. Mm -hmm. You know, she's so good at that she immediately starts pitching these biographies of, you know, Herbert Hoover, who was a politician then, and Charlie Chaplin and Jack London, and pitches them to publishing houses and to their relatives, and in one case to Charlie Chaplin himself, I think, as like highly researched, respectable biographies, and they participated, and then these so-called biographies get published and they are less biographies than um, fantastical tales with one or two facts in them. And a number, I think Jack London's widow sued her. Charlie Chaplin tried to sue her. Herbert Hoover was like, wanted to distance himself from her. He wanted nothing to do with her. Henry Ford's widow was furious. But the thing about all that that stands out to me is that She was not apologetic. It's not like she was like, oh, you caught me. She was like, what are you talking about? I wrote a great book. It makes you look fantastic. She sounds amazing to me. I stand by my earlier statement. I think Rose sounds like a lot of fun. She also sounds like she could have worked at Gawker. Oh, 100%. All of the things she's doing, again, feel very relatable and very modern. And she was very good at it. And she is definitely making questionable decisions. But by the early 20s, 
she's making bank. They paid so highly, and she was so good at these. She moved into short story writing, which in the 20s for magazines was very profitable. She started traveling. Like, she traveled to Albania. She hiked the mountains by herself. She was all over Europe after the war. She was in Paris in the 1920s with that crowd. Yeah, Yeah. good good Paris time, good Paris time. She was in her 40s, and she apparently apparently attended an orgy as an observer. Hmm? We don't think she participated, but again, who knows? We don't know. Uh, we know. don't know. So again, our sense of this too, Caroline Fraser writes, like our sense of her in these time periods are sometimes coming from her sort of colleagues, many of whom are not nice about her. And I, we both know writing about women who strong personalities is a very tenuous business. History is not kind to strong women. But colleagues are not kind to strong women. Like, No, they are. No. Mm-mm. And again— Rose was a very difficult person, like, and she had very questionable views on a number of issues. You know, in hindsight, we see her as this incredibly adventurous, talented woman who's traveling around Europe, you know, after the war. She's in Albania. She's hiking in the mountains by herself, and she's in Paris, and it's so enviable. But Rose herself was so ashamed of the poverty that she'd been raised in, and it was something she carried with her her whole life, which is, I think, something to remember. Like, these things from childhood that we carry don't just go away. No, they sure don't. Mm-mm. And she wrote in her journal, like, Rose is a big diary keeper, which is how we know a lot of this, right? We know a lot of this from Rose's own diary, so you have to sort of read it, uh, read between the lines from time to time. She's not the most reliable narrator, no. as we've established. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> she she wrote in her in her diary in the late 20s, and said, I would change places with any young woman with intelligent, simple, harmonious parents, good health, and a cultured background. Wow. And I mean, we know this, but we all know from social media that you're drawn to the th- the depiction of the thing you feel you don't have. And it's so clear that Rose desperately wanted to not have come from poverty, to have been better educated, to have had parents who— she felt should have been more loving to her. I feel that really hard, though, because I grew up with parents who were both a hot mess. And all I wanted growing up was stability. And so that line that she writes, I'm like, yes, I would have traded with any girl who had a stable home and who had the things that I didn't have. And I think that it made me a massive striver as an adult. And someone who has a great deal of stability. Now, you. exactly. Yeah. Who, yeah, who built stability because I did not have it as a child. Rose definitely craved stability throughout her life. And for a long time, she had the funds to achieve it. But at every turn, Rose managed to undermine herself, making an endless series of bad financial decisions just when she got closest to getting the thing she wanted. But nothing would compare to what Rose did when she returned to Mansfield, Missouri in the late 1920s. Rose had spent her entire life trying to get away from Rocky Ridge. And now she was back. And the first thing she did was use her money to build her parents a new house. A house that neither Laura or Almanza wanted or needed. This house would become the setting of the most explosive, damaging decision Rose ever made. One her mother Laura never got over. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. 
With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash ConcertWeek to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I think it's this. Wilder Rock House. 900 feet. Remember Laura's house, Rocky Ridge, in Mansfield, Missouri? The one Laura designed to her own specifications, right down to the height of the kitchen counter? Well, up the hill, there's another house. The Rock House. I'd want to live in this house. These windows are gorgeous. Rose built this uh, as a little uh, retirement home for her parents. The Rock House cost $11,000 to build, close to $200,000 in today's money, and became a metaphor for Rose's relationship with her parents. After a childhood of severe poverty, Rose wanted them to have something beautiful and expensive, proof of her success and value in the world. To me, it looks like such a glamorous house. These floor-to-ceiling windows and the arch doors and the casement window. It's so... It looks like it could be in a Hollywood film. No expense was spared. And was there electricity in the house? Yes. Rose brought down the electricity at her own expense. From what I recall, I don't think very many houses in this part of the state had access to electricity. Is that... No, uh, most of them didn't get electricity until uh, the 40s. But, and it cost her $3,000. Which in those days was quite. 
For those wondering, $3,000 in 1928 is the equivalent of $53,000 in today's money. So Rose built her dream house, insisting it was also her parents' dream house and the best thing for them. But neither Laura nor Almanzo particularly wanted to live there. They had built Rocky Ridge to their own specifications. Still, Rose was a big personality, and Laura and Almanzo could never seem to say no to her. So up the hill they went to live in the rock house, and down into Rocky Ridge, a place she'd spent most of her life trying to escape, went Rose. Then the market crashed. This hit the Wilder family hard. Rose lost all of her money and all of Laura's money that she'd invested for them. It was a brutal loss and threw the family back into the financial chaos and insecurity they'd spent their entire lives trying to climb out of. In 1931, their brokerage firm collapsed. This is Bill Anderson. He's written about Laura extensively. Rose had encouraged her folks to invest and she was heavily invested. And that's when they really were faced with, what are we going to do now financially? Rose is a single woman. Even before the Rock House, she'd been helping her parents out financially for a long time. Now, in addition to herself and her parents, there were two houses and no money. Add to this the guilt she felt over losing her parents' money, and it was all too much. Throughout her life, Rose had suffered bouts of depression. We know from Rose's diaries that she often scapegoated Laura for everything that was wrong in her life. In one entry that was typical of this resentment, Rose wrote, It is amazing how my mother can make me suffer, how she hates it that I'm her sole source of support. Implicit in every syllable and tone, the fact that I've failed, fallen down on the job, been the broken reed. The picture Rose paints of herself in her journals is that of a woman who runs on martyrdom and bitterness and is incapable of accepting any love shown to her by Laura. The curious thing is that she's sincerely reaching for some kind of companionship with me. She's trying to be friends. She wants genuine warmth, sympathy. She has not the faintest notion of what she's doing to me, but underneath there's not a trace of generosity in her. For most of her adult life, Rose had insisted on supplementing her parents' finances and resented it. But in the aftermath of the financial crash, it was Rose who was completely overcome. And it was at this moment that Laura, a person who'd been through many severe ups and downs in her life, sat down and wrote her memoir, Pioneer Girl. You will remember from our last episode about the writing of the Little House books that Laura initially wrote her memoir, Pioneer Girl, for adults, but that when Rose took it to her publishing contacts, it didn't sell. Rose then reworked it as a young children's story, and that did get some attention. And then Laura and Rose took that and reworked it into Little House in the Big Woods. And boom, Laura's editor called the result a book no depression can stop. While that was happening, Rose was writing too, working on something that she hoped might be a bestseller all her own. Well, sort of her own. Here's where things get absolutely insane. Here's what happens. Laura sells Little House in the Big Woods in 1932 to great excitement. 
she works with Rose on edits for Big Woods to ready it for publication. At the same time Rose is helping Laura, she is also secretly writing a novel titled Let the Hurricane Roar, which she sells to the Saturday Evening Post. Let the Hurricane Roar is about a couple, Charles and Caroline. They are homesteaders in South Dakota who live in a dugout on Wild Plum Creek. Charles plays the violin. They have a baby. Their crops are destroyed by grasshoppers. Charles has to walk hundreds of miles east to find work. Caroline survives a blizzard alone in the house. Does any of this sound familiar? Laura's parents' names are Charles and Caroline. Laura lived in a dugout on Plum Creek. Hurricane is basically a mesh of stories from Laura's own childhood, which Rose knew Laura intended to utilize in future books, mixed with facts from Laura's early marriage to Almanzo. No, really. At the same time Laura was celebrating the publication of Big Woods, Rose wrote a novel based on her mother's life and sold that under her own name to the Saturday Evening Post, which serialized it. The crazier thing is that Rose may have done it without her mother's permission, or even Laura's knowledge. We cannot know with 100% accuracy if Rose Walder Lane wrote Let the Hurricane Roar in Secret, but it looks very, very likely that she did. And I I actually think it was uh, a little bit more insidious than that. Up until 1932, Rose had never shown any interest in writing about the pioneer life. She'd been asked to by various editors, but had never been excited by the idea. Until she and her mother tried to sell Pioneer Girl to the Saturday Evening Post. As you'll remember, Rose told her mother that Pioneer Girl was rejected. But that might not have been the whole truth. Apparently, after turning it down, the Saturday Evening Post may have reconsidered. Lane's literary agent got back in touch with her and said, Hey, I've heard from the Saturday Evening Post. And they are interested in a nonfiction serial about the pioneer days, and they wanted me to get in touch with you, but now they're interested in Pioneer Girl. Apparently, Lane never told her mother that. And so, you know, Saturday Evening Post ultimately, of course, bought Let the Hurricane Roar. It was published in the fall of 1932. And then shortly after the book was published, Lane left Rocky Ridge Farm on an extended trip back east. I want to get this straight, so let me recap for a second. After Little House in the Big Woods, Rose started writing her own novel, which was a fictionalized version of her parents, Laura and Almanzo's marriage. But she changed the names to Laura's parents, Charles and Caroline. And she did this all without telling her mom she was doing it. Yes. I'm nodding my head emphatically like we're on a talk show right now and you're Oprah and we're like, what? The whole audience is like, what? Like, doesn't it feel like we're on some crazy talk show? It feels more Jerry Springer to me. It it totally feels Jerry. This is a Jerry Springer episode. Imagine doing that to your mother. So like Rose is simultaneously spends her life trying to get away from Mansfield and her mother and yet spends her life also writing about her mother (laughs) or like stealing her mother's stories. It is a Jerry Springer show. It is. And her mother didn't even know. Yeah. Like crazy. 
Eventually, Laura did find out, and she didn't take the news well. According to Laura's biographer, Caroline Fraser, Laura found out about the deception during a get-together in her own home with Rose present when Rose's friend, not knowing it was a secret, brought out copies of the advanced advertisements for Hurricane. The advertisements were illustrations of Charles and Caroline, Laura's beloved parents, as dashing Hollywood-esque figures gazing into the future, as if they had been cast in some larger-than-life, big-screen epic romance. Laura was stunned and confused. According to Rose's own journals, Laura wanted to know why her parents were in Dakota as a young couple. Here's Emily and I, reenacting the conversation as Rose recorded it in her journal. Why did they place it in the Dakotas? I don't know. The names aren't right. What names? Charles and Caroline. They don't belong in that place at all. Rose, internally in her head, my mother has effectively destroyed the simple perfection of my pleasure. Perhaps the most extraordinary part of Rose's version is Rose pretending that she had no idea why the story she had written was written in the way she'd written it. Rose liked to claim she hadn't told Laura about Hurricane because her mother never cared about her writing. But even if there were a shred of truth to that statement, why had Rose chosen to use the names Charles and Caroline? To use the details of Laura's childhood that Rose knew were sacred to her mother and also knew that her mother planned to use in future books. Wilder felt betrayed, and why wouldn't you feel betrayed? Here's Pamela Smith-Hill again. I don't think she ever knew that the Saturday Evening Post had again been interested in Pioneer Girl. I don't think she ever knew that. But she did feel betrayed because the main characters in Let the Hurricane Roar are named Charles and Caroline. He plays the fiddle. She's quiet and restrained. There were uh, all kinds of episodes lifted directly from Pioneer Girl. The whole book really comes directly from Pioneer Girl. So she felt betrayed. It's difficult to know Laura's exact feelings on this because she did not keep a journal. But there's a lot of evidence that the hurricane incident caused a huge rift between Laura and Rose. According to Caroline Fraser, the implosion between the mother and daughter was so spectacular, people in Mansfield still speak about it today. There's still memories about this hanging around in Mansfield, Missouri. That's how big a deal it was. It all sounds cataclysmic. How could this have happened? How could these two ever work together again? As with everything to do with Laura and Rose, there are multiple theories. And as always, because Laura herself never kept a record of her own feelings, all these theories are guesswork. For instance, did Rose go behind her mother's back and steal her story for adult audiences and her own glory? Or were the two women in on this together, and maybe Laura was just surprised by the details of that story? Was Hurricane just more proof of the confused, messy overlap of these two women's personal and professional lives? Or was this just the biggest example yet of Rose's self-destructive behavior? And most importantly, how did all this impact the Little House series, most of which had yet to be written? 
Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com iHeart. That's LifeLock.com iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do, too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Like all epic stories that are told over and over again, details can get murky. This is especially true of Laura and Rose. And because we have no version of Laura's side, there's some debate whether Rose was deceiving Laura when she wrote Let the Hurricane Roar, or whether Laura knew what Rose was up to and was just upset by some of the details. There are some scholars who don't think Hurricane was a huge deception on Rose's part. The family did need the money, and writing was basically the family business by this point. From what I've been able to determine, um, Wilder knew 
that Rose uh, was going to fictionalize part of her autobiography. I don't think that was a surprise to Laura. Bill Anderson agrees with this theory. I don't really think it was sneaky. This was a family that was severely hurt by the Depression. It's Laura and Almanzo and Rose were in this together in that they were sharing the stories. Rose was modifying them, making them publishable. And as a team, they were able to keep themselves out of poverty. Still, most scholars are in agreement that Laura was appalled by the way Rose fictionalized her family stories. I think the surprise was that she didn't take the pioneer girl so much as she took her mother's and her father's story and confused it with Carolyn and Charles. Wilder's first reaction to the story is, what are they doing there? That's not right. Those people weren't there in that time period. Whatever Rose and Laura's agreement, if there even was one, Rose writing Hurricane the way she did, did damage to an already fraught relationship. It was the most public display so far of a long-simmering resentment Rose had felt towards her mother since childhood. You know, it was kind of an expression of Rose's, you know, passive aggression of her trying to get back at her mother for things that had happened. There were the all these kind of old resentments and old assumptions you know she she was rose was always saying you know she won't let me grow up she she doesn't you know see me as an adult in the hurricane incident it's obvious that that childhood resentment was now being mixed with some intense professional envy i think she was the kind of writer who projected this image of self-confidence and yet she was well aware of her own limitations And I do think, based on what I've seen in the editorial uh, correspondence between the two, that on the one hand, Lane discounted her mother's work. On the other hand, she knew that her mother was becoming a best-selling writer. And I think Lane did feel a sense of, of rivalry with her mother. So all of that was enormously complicated. We can only guess at Laura's feelings over this. However enraged or hurt she might have been, We have no record of it from her. But we do know for a fact what she did. Laura did what she always did in the face of calamity. She got to work. Nancy Teistag Kupel believes Laura's way of coping with Rose's deception was to get down on paper, even just for herself, what had actually happened in those difficult early years of her marriage to Almanzo. Her objection, I believe, was to the confusion that Lane added to the story. And that's why I think she wrote the first four years, because she wanted to get her own story down the way it happened, at least in her mind, and not the way Lane would fictionalize it. This small act of testimony would end up complicating both Laura and Rose's legacy in ways neither of them could have foreseen. Laura's account of the worst years of her life would eventually be published as the first four years and launch a decades-long conspiracy theory over authorship of the entire Little House series. But in the meantime, the writing of the Little House series needed to go on, 
And it was this necessity that may have saved Rose and Laura's relationship. It is surprising that they were able to kind of continue on together with the books. That's Caroline Fraser. And in Prairie Fires, she writes, there may have been another reason Laura was able to forgive Rose. After Laura discovered the hurricane deception, Rose plunged into such a prolonged state of depression that Laura was worried about her mental state and even feared for Rose's life. Laura's anger may have been cut short by real concern over her daughter's survival. I think Laura did have a a really hot temper. I think she knew it. She admitted it. You know, El Manzo knew about it. He talked about it. But I think she could also, you know, analyze herself later and say, oh, you know, I I need to apologize for this. I think she did apologize for some of the ways, you know, in which she hurt Rose. And Laura could also just be very sweet, you know. I mean, she... She had a sweetness to her character and a generosity uh, of spirit, which, which is really admirable. Whatever the reason, Laura and Rose's collaboration on Farmer Boy is what saved their relationship. By this point in 1933, Rose had left home, possibly to escape her shame and Laura's wrath, and was on an extended research trip in upstate New York. Although their relationship was still strained, we can see from letters that their collaboration was beginning to reignite. Here's Pamela Smith-Hill again. While she was away in New York, she sent postcards back to her mom and visited Malone, New York. And Wilder was already beginning, she'd already written a draft of Farmer Boy, but Lane sent back postcards, she sent descriptions of Malone, New York. And so by the time that they're reunited, at Rocky Ridge Farm, and the holidays are over, they began to work on another version of Farmer Boy. Farmer Boy, Laura's follow-up to Big Woods, was based on Almanzo's life. The first draft she and Rose turned in, completed in the terrible aftermath of the hurricane deception, was turned down. Laura and Rose received this news just as Hurricane was publishing, which must have added salt to the already terrible wound. One of the issues with Farmer Boy is that Laura was writing about something she hadn't directly experienced, and it showed. She and Rose had to come back together and do it again. Here's Pamela Smith-Hill again. I think Farmer Boy apparently was the project that healed the rift between the two of them because they worked on that together. And then by the time that Farmer Boy was accepted, Something had triggered Wilder to think bigger about her work. And really, they collaborated throughout the 1930s, not just on uh, the Little House series, but uh, even on Freeland. Freeland is Lane's second novel, and it again pulls from Laura and Almanzo's experience, as well as Laura's parents, Charles and Caroline's. Rose may have learned her lesson this time, though, since the main characters are named David and Nettie a young couple who take up the offer of free land in Dakota Territory. In 1937, when uh, Lane was working on free land, which comes directly from material out out of Pioneer Girl, Wilder was working on By the Shores of Silver Lake. They were writing sometimes the same scene, similar characters. And at this point, they were talking about it back and forth openly. We have editorial correspondence. 
1937, the Saturday Evening Post paid Rose $30,000 to serialize Freeland. That's more than $600,000 in today's money. That's more than the biggest freelance magazine writer makes today. Freeland also seemed to mark the end of the push-and-pull struggle over who had a right to what parts of whose story. So by the late 1930s, they'd pretty much sorted out how they were going to go forward. Rose was now permanently living away from Mansfield, and Laura was gaining confidence in her own writing. Their collaboration continued, but it was mostly by letter correspondence now, which perhaps eased some of the intensity of their relationship. After Rose's departure, Laura and Almanzo returned to their own dream house, Rocky Ridge Farm, where Laura wrote each day in her specially built writing nook with a view of the garden. Each successive Little House book was a great success and brought increasing financial stability to both mother and daughter. And yet, the most surprising part of this intense collaboration was still to come. No one involved could have foretold its long and complicated legacy, which eventually reached all the way to Hollywood and nearly made it to the White House. We're still feeling the effects of Rose and Laura's extraordinary relationship today in ways you may be shocked to discover. That's next week in part two of Rose Wilder Lane. Wilder is written and hosted by me, Glynis McNichol. Our story editors are Joe Piazza and Emily Marinoff. Our senior producer is Emily Marinoff. Our producers are Mary Dew, Sheena Ozaki, and Jessica Kreinchich. Our associate producer is Lauren Phillip. Sound design and mixing by Amanda Rose Smith. Our theme and additional music was composed by Elise McCoy. We are executive produced by Joe Piazza, Nikki Tor, Ali Perry, and me. If you're enjoying Wilder, please consider rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. It actually helps us out quite a lot. Thank you to the Laura Ingalls Wilder Memorial Society in Desmet, South Dakota, and the Laura Ingalls Wilder Historic Home and Museum in Mansfield, Missouri. And a special shout out to Caroline Fraser, whose book Prairie Fires is the motherlode on Rose and Laura's relationship. Thank you as always to CDM Studios. Please see our show notes if you want to know more about the people we interviewed, the places we visited, the books we mentioned. You can also find our contact info there if you want to write to us with your own thoughts and questions. Follow us on Instagram at wilder underscore podcast and on TikTok at wilder podcast, where you can see behind the scenes footage from all our travels. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Like sand through the hourglass, so go the houses. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Live Nation presents Concert Week. 
Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and two-door cinema club. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach. Give me great food. Tacos. Give me adventure. Hiking. Give me a date night. Sunset cruise. Give me some smiles. Cheese. Give me more beaches. Beaches. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at sandiego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds.